All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Elon Musk buys a significant chunk of Twitter. Now, for those of you who are thinking, Nick, I don't have a Twitter account and I don't care, you should. And we're going to explain why on this episode, because this is important, not just for people that use Twitter, this is actually important for the entire industry, as well as this whole debate with respect to what do we do about big tech censorship. In addition to that, we're going to discuss a little bit about the Supreme Court hearings, because there's been an interesting development there as well as well as giving you some additional resources that you can use with respect to you know, debating this whole issue about what is actually going on within our public schools. We're going to be discussing all of that on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, first things first. So not that long ago, Elon Musk kind of threw it out there that he might buy a significant you know, stake in Twitter. And this kind of you know blew things up across the internet. You had different opinions. Obviously, a lot of people on the right loved this idea. A lot of people on the left did not like this idea. And then the next thing you know, because Musk has said things before where he's kind of thrown out ideas and some of them he's acted on, some of them he hasn't. He usually does, though, in a lot of ways he does. And so he goes right and he buys 9.2% of Twitter. Now, for those of you sitting there and thinking, wait a second, 9.2%, who cares? He doesn't even have he doesn't even have 10%, right? Like how can he affect any sort of meaningful change uh, with while just owning 9.2% of the shares? That actually makes him the largest shareholder of Twitter in the world, right? He's the, he's the largest shareholder of Twitter now, right? Even Jack Dorsey, former CEO, does, doesn't have, you know, a, a fraction of that amount. And we saw today where he got invited to be on the board of directors. So he is going to be playing a major role in Twitter now because he owns so much of it compared with other people. Now, you have some people coming out and saying, well, he doesn't own 50, you know, 50% plus one, so he can't mandate changes. No, that's correct. He can't just arbitrarily mandate changes. However, it's not that he has to control 50% plus one. He just needs to find other people of similar like-minded opinion to vote with him on some of the changes that a lot of people have been talking about, especially when it comes to interpretation and enforcement of community guidelines, right? And what we've seen with Elon Musk is that he's described himself as a free speech absolutist. And we know this because when things were going on in the Ukraine and he was making sure that Starlink was up so that Ukrainians could still have access to the internet when the Russians were shutting infrastructure down, right? There were some calls by different groups and different individuals to have Elon Musk censor 
any sort of stuff coming from the Russians, right? So, so censor things that was coming maybe from the Russian government or Belarus or just Russians in general, etc. And Elon Musk said, look, I'm going to make internet available. I'm going to make sure the Ukrainians still have it, but I'm not going to censor people. He goes, because I'm a free speech absolutist. And this is why, even if you don't use Twitter, even if you could care, couldn't care less about Twitter, this is why it's so important for Elon Musk to be playing a larger role on the board because a lot of people do use Twitter and, and Twitter does have influence within society with respect to what companies do, with respect to what politicians do. I'm not saying that everybody decides what they're going to do based off of Twitter, but if you don't believe it has influence, you're wrong. I'm sorry. It might not have influence with you as an individual, but it is definitely influencing things around you. It is definitely influencing the products you buy. It's influencing what your kids end up watching on, on television, what they end up hearing in the news or in the media. So this is important. And this is a big step because there has been this divide within the conservative movement on what is the appropriate approach to big tech censorship. And there's been a lot of conservatives, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not one of them. There's been a lot of conservatives that have cried for more government intervention into social media. Now, even on that side, there's been kind of two different wings in this. Like one wing is simply to say that, look, social media outlets are going to have to decide whether or not they're a publisher, right? Or whether or not they are just a platform. So there's different rules, right? If you're a publisher, what that says is that you have the full ability to totally edit the content uh, and, and push things out there and you can, you can be perfectly biased. That doesn't mean you're protected from things like slander or libel or things like that, but you can be biased in your reporting, right? There, there's no, because you're a publisher. You bear some responsibility for things like slander and libel. Now, if you're just a platform, so for this, think of like the phone company, right? AT&T is not liable if somebody says something bad or wrong or evil or criminal or corrupt on the phone line. They're just providing a platform to facilitate communication. They're not editing any of it, all right? But a lot of your social media networks basically get the legal protections of being a platform. And now what we see is they've deliberately operated in such a way as to, you know, kind of, you know, quash certain types of speech. And they've always done so. And well, this is just, a, hey, we're a private company. We can do what we want. And again, I'm sympathetic to that unless you're getting legal protections to be a platform instead of a platform, or excuse me, a platform instead of a publisher, right? If you're going to come out there and play an active role in editing the content, and we're not talking about editing criminal content. We're just talking about content you don't happen to like. Well, at what point do you cross the threshold into being a publisher? So I think that is a legitimate argument that some conservatives are making with respect to, you know, how is the government going to play in this realm? There's been other conservatives that have said, no, this is monopolistic. We need to break them up. We need to use antitrust law. We need I'm sorry, I do not agree with that. And my argument has been consistent the entire time. It's like, if you allow the government to have a greater say in regulating social media companies, you are going to end up with a far worse product than you currently have. Because now social media companies are going to be operating in order to please whoever the powers you know, are at that current time. And that is not what you want and what should be a platform for open discussion, speech, advocacy, etc. So... The other side of the conservative argument has been when you have a problem like this with a company, the best way to deal with it is through free market principles. And so you've had a, a couple different arguments there. One is create more of a competitive market. So you have Twitter, you have Facebook, you have Instagram, you have TikTok. We know that all of these are run by people that have very left-wing ideologies. Like we know this. Now, they want to claim that that has no effect on what they're doing or how they're actually you know, guiding their principles. We all know that's garbage. We all know it's, it's crap, right? 
But the argument has been like, okay, so we need conservatives to set up platforms. Now, how are conservatives doing? Are conservatives going to basically use the same tactics that these left-wing organizations have been as, as far as suppressing speech? Now, the vast majority of conservatives said, no, we don't want that. We just want a platform that's actually operating like a platform. And so you have things like Rumble. You have things like uh, Getter. You have things like Parler. You have things like Truth Social. Now, what all those sought to do was essentially say that, okay, we're going to create more options within the competitive environment, within the marketplace. So you don't like what YouTube's doing? You can go to Rumble, right? And you've seen people like Steven Crowder do this, right? And he doesn't just post on YouTube. He also posts on Rumble because Rumble doesn't you know, block him all the time because he said something that the left doesn't happen to like today, right? So you have Rumble as, as a competitor. Then you have things like Parler that really came up as more of a competitor to Twitter. You see the same thing with Getter, the same thing with True Social. If you look at the way that they operate, they're, they're designed to compete more with Twitter than they are with Facebook. And what happened was, especially with, with Parler, was Twitter was starting to like suspend people. And Parler was getting a lot of people that were, were joining and, and actively using Parler the way that they currently use Twitter. And then Donald Trump, when he was getting kicked off of Twitter, could still use Parler. Well, what happened? Amazon and everyone else that were not, obviously they didn't control Parler, but what they did control was the servers that Parler used. And so they colluded with one another and they shut down one of their major competitors. Now, this is the part where a lot of conservatives are coming and going, see, we need antitrust law because these guys pretty much control everything. Even when you set up a competitive platform, they still have the ability to come in and use the resources they have to shut you down if they don't like what you're doing. Right. And, and again, there was a lot of people that found this very convincing. Again, the problem I had is antitrust law has been used inappropriately in a lot of ways and is used to intimidate companies that don't really fall even into the, you know, the nature of what antitrust law was supposed to be about. Um, now, there's other companies that said, OK, no, what this means is, is we need another market, not just for the forward facing you know, social media platform. We also need like to be able to run the server stacks. We need you know, independence from places like Amazon so they can't come in and shut you down anyways. Um, and that's where you saw things like with Getter. That's where you see things with True Social and others where they're trying, to, they're trying to be totally independent, not just the user face, but everything that's behind to make the user face possible. And I think this is all good. However, the argument is, is they're not gaining the same degree of traction. And who knows? Maybe they will. A lot of times this takes time. Enter Elon Musk, right? This is what's different now, all right? So we just explained kind of one conservative approach was a little bit more reliant on the government. One conservative approach was a little bit more reliant on the free market and creating, you know, com competitive alternatives. Now we have this third option, right? Which is also within the free market option. And that is, if you don't like how a current company is running something, buy a portion of that company and start to have more influence on it. Now, there's a lot of people say, well, okay, well, that's not fair. You know, I can't buy, you know, billions of dollars worth of Twitter. No, you can't, but Elon Musk can. And just like liberals come in and buy up significant portions of companies in order to push it in a particular direction, people that are conservative, or in this case, someone that's just more of a free, free speech advocate can come in and see an economic opportunity by changing the way that Twitter works so it appeals to a much larger group. Because right now, Twitter, while, while it's still a, a platform that a lot of people operate on, it appeals and its, its rules are arranged in such a way as to benefit the left. And Elon Musk sees this as an opportunity to spread that out, gain more people doing it, and he can make more money, right? He can make Twitter more profitable by opening it up to a larger consumer base. Right? That is typically how people become super wealthy. Right, There's this idea that you become super wealthy by designing something that's super expensive. Actually, you become super wealthy in a free market by providing something affordable that can appeal to as many consumers as possible. And so I think some of the changes that you're seeing Elon Musk potentially pushing within Twitter 
could actually create that environment where it becomes more profitable at the same time that it becomes more open to diversity within with respect to its opinions and more consistency with respect to what its community guidelines say and how they enforce it. Now, here's another, here's another area that not a lot of people are talking about, right? But this is something that could be significant. And it's not just about changing Twitter to be more open. It's also about someone like Elon Musk or a majority of the, the shareholders being led by someone like Elon Musk opening up what has gone on in the past with Twitter with respect to their algorithm and how they've been conducting themselves, right? Because we all got the company line from people like Jack Dorsey, right? But what was really going on? And now we might be in a position to find out more about how that algorithm is really working and how the inner workings of Twitter are really being used. Now, you always have to be ready to have information come back and, and learn that, okay, maybe things weren't as bad as you thought it was, or maybe things were a whole lot worse than you thought it was. But either way, it would be great to be in a position where we have someone that could impose those sorts of, that sort of transparency within an organization so that we can confirm or deny a lot of the, the claims that have been made and a lot, I think a lot of the activity that most of us identify as being specifically directed toward the selective application of the rules to target conservatives to the benefit of their left-wing you know, participants or the left-wing owners. right? That's, that's something that could be critical. And again, for those of you that are saying, Nick, I'm not on Twitter, I don't care, I got rid of it a long time ago. Yes, you do care. And the reason why you care is because whenever you have a, a, a social media platform that is this powerful and influential and, and um, has the ability to make this much money, you do want it to be operated as fairly and openly as possible. Because again, even if it's not affecting you directly as a Twitter user or non-user, it is potentially affecting other decisions that impact your life or your children's life, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a positive development. And again, the two things that we need to look for is what sort of changes are made to Twitter? And do those changes not only increase the amount of people that are able to participate, but does it increase the profits for Twitter? Because that's also a very good indication to the rest, to not just the social media industry, but to the industry as a whole, right? Several industries. Because right now there's this popular narrative among woke capital, which is to say that you got to run as far as you can to the left, especially on some certain issues, in order to not alienate your customer base. Well, if Elon Musk comes in, starts changing rules, and not only is Twitter more open, but it's more profitable, this sends an important message to all those other companies that you do continue to do business with or are essentially forced to do business with because you don't really have alternatives, that no, alienating half of your customer base is kind of a stupid idea. Right, so that's that's why this is important on so <clears throat> many levels, and I don't see enough people talking about it from that angle. All right, so let's all kind of sit back and see what happens with that, because I think this is going to be I think this is going to be really interesting to watch. Not to mention the fact that now that you know ostensibly somebody that is a free speech advocate owns nearly ten percent of Twitter, if he finds more people, plus if more conservatives get out there and buy stocks and kind of follow suit, now you actually have a block of people that want to see changes to Twitter that can affect those changes. So. Um, again, this is going to be something that's really interesting to watch over the next several you know, weeks and months. Let's move on to what was happening within the Supreme Court because there was an interesting statement that was made. I'm going to read this off for you. Um, and it had to do with the whole concept of natural rights um, because natural rights is a concept that is kind of, it is read in uh, to our constitution 
or excuse me, it, it's specifically read into our Declaration of Independence. That's, that's a better way to put it. It's read into the Declaration of Independence, which informed the creation of the Constitution. There's a lot of people like to act like, well, one is a, a, a document that articulates the reasons why the colonies are separating from England, whereas the Constitution is actually a legal document setting up the federal government and the interplay between the federal government and the states. And so, you know, a lot of times people say, well, the Declaration of Independence doesn't matter with respect to interpreting the Constitution. I actually don't think that's true in a moral or philosophical sense. I think it's really important to understand that the Declaration of Independence was critical with respect to the underlying philosophy which informed the creation of the Constitution. And one of the things that they talk about in the Declaration of Independence is this, this idea of God-given or natural rights. It's the idea that there are some rights which precede government, and government has an obligation to recognize and protect those rights, right? and has also has an obligation to not infringe upon them. So it's important to understand that when we're talking about the Bill of Rights or when we're talking about um, you know, certain concepts about individual liberty or personal responsibility, which have kind of been enshrined in the American political tradition, right? they haven't always been perfectly executed or observed, but they've been enshrined. It, it's important to make that distinction that, that our government was founded on the concepts that there are certain rights that, again, precede government, and the government has an obligation to acknowledge and protect them. So... There was a question that was asked of uh, Justice Jackson, who's, again, currently sitting there, going to be, it looks like probably going to be confirmed as our next Supreme Court justice. And she said, I do not hold a position on whether individuals possess natural rights. Here is why that is so substantive. A lot of you people are going to like, yeah, Nick, I, I get why it's so substantive. Okay, but let's really, let's really dig into this. If you don't believe that an individual possesses, or you hold no position on whether or not an individual possesses natural rights, the question, the follow-up question I would have liked to have seen has been, where do rights then come from? Because if they're not natural, or if they're not God-given, right? Because someone like me would say, no, they're God-given. They're part of God's created order. Somebody else might say, well, I don't necessarily know if, if they come from God, but I do believe that they're inherent with respect to existence. Okay? Those positions automatically imply a limitation on government power. There is a third position, and that is, is that rights are derived from political society, or to say that government is the one that conveys rights. Here's the problem. If that's true, then any sort of right that the government could convey, the government then has the legal authority to take away. And at that point, you really get into this question, are they rights or are they privileges? Because if they're, if they're just privileges, well, then they exist because the government says they exist. And they stop existing when the government decides they stop existing. And this has huge ramifications. Because now, not only... We, we already have a legal process whereby the Constitution can be changed and whereby the government can decide to no longer recognize a particular right or a particular practice, right? We have a constitutional process for that. But ultimately, the way, the reason why so many of these rights surrounding the First Amendment or your, your, um, your Second Amendment rights, the, the reason why so many of these have, have stood the test of time is because we've appealed to this idea and because, generally speaking, our, our legal system and our, our political philosophy has been rooted in this idea that it doesn't matter how many votes you have in Congress, you don't get to control the thoughts or religious expression of another human being, provided they're not infringing on the rights of somebody else. Right? That, that has been core. That has been, in, that has been inherent. 
and, and what's fascinating is the people that will come back and challenge us on that. The people on the left that will come back like, oh, you say it's inherent, but it didn't apply to African-Americans. You say it's inherent, but it didn't apply to women. Okay, but what arguments did people like Frederick Douglass or Susan B. Anthony or all of our other civil rights advocates, what arguments did they use when they were trying to enshrine those rights within our legal codes? They came back and they said, no, it is, it is morally reprehensible to deny equal rights or equal justice before the law to people based off of their skin color or based off of their gender. Really? Why? Because if this is all a question of the government deciding what is a right and what is not a right, and, and the primary way that you want to determine the way government decides that is through democracy, then what you're saying is, is that whatever the majority decides on is your right. Whatever the majority decides is just. But that's not what these civil rights advocates were doing. And this is a very important point. And this is, we distinguish this because a lot of conservatives come back and they'll look at the left and be like, well, that's ridiculous. No, what we should be doing is looking at the left and going, really? Because that's not how you argued before. That's not how the civil rights movement was arguing, which, by the way, was not the left in the common sense that we hear today. But civil rights advocates, when they were talking about why we needed to expand the, the rights enshrined in our Constitution to everybody, was because of the inherent nature of those rights. It was the idea that the government is doing something wrong because it's restricting those rights. Well, why? Because if this is a question of, if this is a Supreme Court justice essentially saying that this isn't about, she doesn't have a position on whether or not an individual possesses a natural right, well then, what authority are you appealing to when you say it is wrong that one person has a right that another person does not? Is it just your personal opinion? Okay, great. Why is your personal opinion any better? But that's the crazy part, right? They'll say that this is about democracy. They'll say this is about fairness. When you start talking about fairness, when you start talking about um, e equality or, or a moral component to that, you are appealing to metaphysics. You're appealing to some sort of authority outside of what men and women can dictate through the law. You're saying that there is a higher moral order that we should appeal to, and guess what? I agree. But if you're going to have a Supreme Court justice say that I don't acknowledge that or I don't take a position on that, well, that's going to, <laughs> that's going to be critical with respect to the way that she actually interprets the application of the law. Because now when the government comes in and does something, her argument's going to be like, well, you know, if the government decided it, I guess the government decides it. There, there's nothing else that we appeal to. And what's so interesting about that is that what this reminds me of, and I, I always hesitate to bring this up as a point, but I think it actually applies here because I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. But when they were actually having the trials after World War II with respect to Nazi war criminals, one of the most common arguments that the people that executed that used was this idea that I was simply following the laws of the land. I was executing the laws which took place within my country and which governed my country's actions. So how can I be called, how can I be guilty of a criminal act? And there was a there was a lawyer that got up and says that yes, but is there not a higher law? Well, if we can't appeal to this idea that, that individuals do have natural rights then the question is, is, okay, what is the highest law? Is it the national law? Is it the Constitution? Is it some sort of international law? How does that work? 
So no, th this is a critical point. And this is something that, you know, right now Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney have already said that they're going to vote for. And I'm looking at this going, are you, are you kidding me? I mean, maybe, maybe you're not as concerned with respect to some of the, the you know, decisions she held down that kind of went lenient, uh, lenient on people that possess child pornography. Maybe you're not concerned with the fact that one minute she says, I have nothing to do with CRT, and the next minute you go and you find out that she does. Maybe you don't have any problems with that. You should have a problem with the justice that says, I don't have a position on whether or not individuals have natural rights. Because that will impact every single decision. And it is, on some level, a major departure with respect to the way Americans look at what their rights are and the government's role with respect to observing and protecting them as opposed to arbitrarily creating or eliminating them. And we need to remind some of the people now that don't have any problem with this statement that they're probably going to change their tune pretty quick when they find out that that's what they've been appealing to with respect to every civil rights march they've ever participated in is the idea that human beings have inherent worth and as such have certain unalienable rights. But if those rights are not natural, if those rights are purely a question of what the majority says through government, I got news for you. You might not like what the government does. You might like what the government does, but you don't get to hold it any sort of moral account if there is no objective moral standard which we're appealing to. If this is just about might makes right, as long as it's democratic, I got bad news. There's a lot of dark pages in U.S. history that had a majority vote that didn't make him justified. So to those on the left, they better be real careful on what they appeal or what they celebrate here because this has massive implications for a lot of things they claim to care about. All right, let's go to the last thing that we're going to talk about today, and that has to do with some of the things that are going on within our schools because here's one of the things I've, I've, I've seen, and I've been really, I mean, I've been talking about this issue a lot, because of you know the parental rights bill down in Florida and parental rights bills that we're seeing popping up across the country. And the left's response to this, whether it's through CRT or whether it's about you know discussing you know issues of sex to very, very young children as, as young as you know eight and nine years old, um, the left has come back and essentially said you're, you're book burners or you don't want to teach hard history or you know you don't want kids to actually you know you, you don't want trans kids to feel safe within the public school system. That's always their thing, right? They, they've, they've created this victim and they're saying, we're protecting this victim against you. But what's fascinating is that when these issues first pop up, their statement is not, we're protecting these kids that are potential victims or vulnerable against you, or we're just trying to teach hard history. What their initial argument is, no, that's not going on. There's not CRT in our schools. There, there's not, we're not teaching this sort of you know, elaborate sex education that the, the right claims we are to young kids. And then you find out that they are. And then they change the narrative from this isn't happening to this is happening. It's good that it's happening. If you don't like it, you're a bigot. Or this whole cultural war is just a distraction from real issues. Well, wait a second. How is it that a second ago it wasn't happening? Now it is happening. And now all of a sudden we're bad guys for noticing something was happening that you told us five seconds ago wasn't happening? See, this is the frustration. Parents are tired of being lied to. We talk about gaslighting. We talk, you are being lied to. That is what has been going on. We have been lied to by our schools, by our elected representatives about what they are actually doing and about what their goals are. And this is why you see this all the time. I, I've mentioned this multiple times. The moment I hear a left-wing progressive say, nobody wants to, whatever they say next, that's exactly what they want to do. 
That's exactly what they want to do. They might got to have a different. They might have a slightly different way of describing it to make it a more you know socially palatable to a larger audience. But nobody wants to take your guns. Yes, they do. Nobody wants to teach your kids about sex in kindergarten. Yes, they do. Nobody wants to teach CRT in elementary schools. Yes, they do. They absolutely do. And the fact that they're telling you it's not going on and that nobody wants to actually do this is an indicator especially when we produce evidence that they are doing that, it's an indicator that they recognize that there's either something wrong with it or they recognize it's not as popular as they think it is. And so they're trying to be secretive about it. And parents are starting to push back. I want to give you, I want to give you a link to a group. I, I know, I think they have a website. They're on TikTok. They're on, um, uh, they're on Twitter. Uh, Joe Rogan's talked about them. It's a group called Libs of TikTok. And, one, and, and you look at this and at first you're thinking, okay, this is just some like, kind of like funny parody site where they're showing you some of the most extreme elements. With it. They're actually doing yeoman's work when it comes to identifying people that have put out there on social media exactly what they're doing in their element as teachers doing in their elementary school classes, whether it's, you know, pushing a particular agenda with respect to sexuality, whether it's pushing a particular ideology with respect to critical race theory, like they're sitting there openly talking about doing it. And libs of TikTok has actually done the hard work of going through finding all these accounts and just publishing the stuff that they're publishing and actually shedding some daylight on it so that you can go and see. I had a great instance the other day when I talked about what the left was pushing within our elementary schools. I had all these liberals come out of my Twitter and be like, show me some proof. This isn't happening. I went to my have kids in school and this never took place. Boom, boom, boom. I started showing them. This is where it's taking place. Oh, here it is, right out of the Virginia Department of Education website. Oh, here it is, right out of the Illinois Department of Education website. Oh, here it is, going on in a Florida school. And then all of a sudden they get quiet or they flip the narrative. Like initially it was, this isn't happening. Yeah, it is. It's happening right here, right here, and right here. Oh, well, this is needed. Well, which is it? Is it not happening or is it is happening and you like it? Because if you like it, then yeah, we're going to have a different conversation. And when I start to wonder about whether or not you talking about sex to kindergartners is a little bit suspicious on a couple different levels, and you come back and say, how dare you? No, no, no. How dare you? I'm not going up to your kid and trying to push my ideology or agenda on them. I want you to be free to raise your kid the way you want. I also want you to respect other people to be free to raise their kids the way they want and to educate them the way that they want. And does that mean that everyone's going to make the best choice? Not necessarily. Does that mean someone else might educate their child in a way that I don't particularly agree with? Yes. But if they're not infringing on the rights or liberties of somebody else, I have far more faith in parents to be more responsible and in control of their parents' kids' education than I do some government system, especially when that same government system does things that they swear up and down they're not doing and when they get caught doing them, tells the rest of us we're bigots and we shouldn't have any say in it. So parents are done. And guess what? We're done being embarrassed about being done. So if you start to see that we, we're a lot more forthcoming about what we think, not only of what's taking place, but of the people perpetuating it and then lying to us about it, tough. I'm sorry that hurts your feelings. Here's what you can do. You can change your course of action or better yet, continue on your course of action, but don't do it with my kids or somebody else's kids that hasn't given you permission to do it. And don't feel that you can confiscate our tax dollars in order to push your particular agenda because there's one of two responses to that. One response is fine. If this is the way the game is played, you're going to use tax dollars to push your agenda. Then we're going to advocate to use tax dollars to push our agenda. Then all of a sudden you'll get upset about this which leads me to the third alternative. And I talked about this the other day on social media. Here's the third alternative. Your tax dollars for, follow your student to the educational institutions you approve of. My tax dollars follow my student to the educational institutions I approve of. And then we can see 
We can see which, one, which ideas, which concepts, which learning patterns, which ones work best for a diverse student body. And if you think it is just super important to focus on the certain issues that they're doing right now in some of these public schools, you still have the ability to do that. But somebody else has the ability to seek something else out that they think will work better for their child. And if you can't agree to that, then you're the one taking the authoritarian position and I'm gonna call it like it is. Because I'm not the one forcing you to do something you don't wanna do. You are the one forcing me. So you're the authoritarian, sorry. And if you're the sort of authoritarian that thinks that we should be having in-depth sexual conversations with third graders teaching you about things like masturbation, like the Department of Education in Illinois does, then not only are you the authoritarian, but I got some other questions with respect to your moral compass. And how dare you presume to be able to do that stuff with other people's children without their permission or without their knowledge? No, there's something wrong with you, not us for pointing it out. And we're not going to apologize anymore. So if you don't like that, you can either adjust and we can reach a compromise or you can continue to push your agenda, but get ready for the pushback. Because again, we're not apologizing. We're not feeling bad. We're not feeling awkward about standing up for our kids anymore. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Again, this will be the last episode that we have within this format. I'm really happy to report that we got the studio. It's coming along great. Can't think enough. Like my wife, Tina, has been working like really, really hard to get certain things together. The rest of the team, too. Hamilton's got all the, the, the gear together. I think you're really going to like the new format. So stay tuned. This Thursday, we're going to be doing our first episode from the new studio. I'm looking forward to it. I'm Nick Freitas from Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.